0: Well, there's something to be said about the physical experience as well. When you've had a pairing that just like blows you away, or when you've tasted a, you know, uh, tomato, an heirloom tomato that's just like perfectly ripe, and your body remembers it, your body knows it.
1: I'm Franz. I'm AJ, and this is In the Weeds, a podcast about the food and beverage industry, past, present, and future. Our goal is to legitimize food and beverage by sharing stories
2: of people we meet, learning new things, and having some laughs along the way. Be sure to check us out on Instagram and in the weedspodcast.com. Hey, Franz. Looking little bag there, buddy.
1: No, man, all this podcasting's just making me thirsty. Hey pal, you know what? I got something for you. Have a junk punch. What's a junk punch, Remy? Well, I'm glad you asked.
2: Junk Punch is a fantastic Northwest style IPA brewed by our friends at Riot Brewing Company, located in Shamanus, BC. Officially the sponsors of In The Weeds Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to In The Weeds. This week we are speaking with a very special guest, Mark Watchton from Storied Wines and Spirits. Since 2010, Mark has been representing some of BC's finest purveyors of low-intervention wines, craft cider, and craft distilling He is a long-term hospitalian and Vancouver Islander for life. Totally fun sitting down chatting with Mark about all of his stories and his insights on the industry and where
1: things are going. We hope you enjoy the show. I can hear you now. Okay, how am I doing? Is there only one of me? There is only one of you. You do not sound like you're...
2: Sounds like a Taylor Swift song.
1: Zool from Inside the Fridge. (laughs) Zool. (laughs) Good one. Uh, Uh, Wonderful. Hey this happened gentlemen
0: finally sorry let me
1: be the first mr Walk-in, to welcome you to in the weeds podcast thank you you finally arrived <laughs> you've you've
2: arrived at a level of success you probably were not prepared for <laughs> <laughs> the power
0: is working
1: <laughs> yeah now be be prepared for the deluge of further success that you're going to get from being on this podcast just warnings you know like, yeah i'd recommend a security detail <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah at the okay. very least yeah, very presidential. Yeah, you're going to yep. have to go around with uh, with hired thugs from now on. Yeah, you might need a code name. Let's start off as we normally do by getting you to tell our listening audience a little bit about yourself.
0: I'm super pleased that you're here. Oh, my God. Okay, where do I start? Uh, as far yeah, back as you want. Yeah, where, wherever I mean, you want to start. Oh, God. So I am a food and beverage junkie, I mm. guess. I can. I'm gaining a lot of weight these days. I can definitely... Prove it. Yeah, um, me I too. Started, I got you. It's cool. Yeah. So we, I think, Franzi, you and I have something in common. I grew up in Shawanigan Lake. Yes, sir. Lake. So, and I, I my parents are probably the first hippie parents in Shawnigan Oh, definitely. That's yeah. Oh. I see some wine. Ah, oh, I should have brought some wine. Damn. Jesus. Have, I I, I, of all the people. Filler. I feel poorly uh, yeah.
1: because I'm actually not drinking uh, something from uh, from your pedigree of, of what you're about probably going to tell us about. But to Did it count of a box point. or what? No, 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 no. This one's delicious. It's uh, six years old. I made a tasty little uh, date night dinner for me and Beth tonight. And nice. this is, uh, I have to take a picture because I am the worst. My memory is like Swiss cheese these days. Uh, yeah. It's uh, Crown and Thieves Syrah from the Okanagan Valley. Right on, cool, yeah, it's delightful I better,
0: go, I better go crack something open yeah,
1: I'm, feeling
0: out, I'm feeling outdone here any uh yeah, so I was uh I grew up Shawnigan Lake, I was a my parents were hippies had a garden uh kind of um, grew up with definitely uh it wasn't a hippie town we <laughs> got there uh and so I think that's kind of like the seed of me getting into being around food for sure the food part of it and being around people that um Enjoy it, and then uh, then I just were, I worked in restaurants since I was a kid. I started at like 15 working at the Malhat Chalet. Oh, my oh sweet, yeah. And then I was bartending underage at the Couch and Valley Inn. Nice. And and nice. those days I was doing yeah. And I and, you know I was talking to um, uh, a long term uh, food and beverage person that's been well a guy that's been around for a long time. That's uh, that's really reputable in town. And we were having a conversation over some beers the other day, and. Uh, we were <laughs> we were uh, talking about just like how we got started. And I was like, I said, you know, I asked him, I said, did you get started because you just like to be around people? And, you, and like, like, why did you get going? And he said, yeah, he said, exactly. He said, also, I was, I was from a poor family. I said, yeah, me too. My family had nothing, you know, super poor hippies in Seanigan Lake. And I just wanted to get away. And so I started working in restaurants and I love being around the food and around having people around, being at, like a, as a family, immediate family. You had great food uh, and it was fun. And so that's, that's what got me in. And I kept going. I just, I really loved it. What's
1: your, your family background? Where, where did your, 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 your people come from?
0: Oh yeah. So my mom and dad were, uh, were met in Los Angeles. And so oh, I was, I was born in California in the sixties. Ah, and, uh, <laughs> uh <we> came, <laughs> my dad had a, uh, did they a have mom.
2: California back then? <laughs> <What's that? laughs> did they have California back then?
0: Yeah. And also that was like, that was like the time we should have stayed really. So my my parents, my dad had a kind of a, a a life-changing couple life-changing experiences and decided to sell his business and build a camper and move four kids, uh, North just drive North without no plan, just a bank account. Wow. That's Um, courageous. And the camper that we were, uh, it was an old Studebaker truck and the camper broke down on the road between Port Alberni and Tofino. Huh. oh wow and so yeah and it was an old Ford it was uh, it was a Ford what was this an old old truck it was like of 1940s and so and it was a hand-built camper and so, my, so uh, my dad couldn't get parts for the truck so we ended up buying a house in Port Alberni and that's where we that's where we that's where we landed
1: <laughs> that's wow. an awesome byproduct don't have parts gonna settle down
0: <laughs> yeah yeah four kids like it was crazy so I uh, started in Port Alberni moved around the island a bit but settled in Shawinigan Lake pretty soon Cool. Yeah.
2: What kind of business did your dad have in California?
0: Uh, yeah, my dad was a printer. His father was a printer. Uh, he was a third generation. My son, my brother, also got into it. He, wa- he went from being a, a pretty successful small business guy in California. Uh, he was raised in Los Angeles to becoming a hippie and basically giving, just giving everything up and, and, uh, and getting into very, you know, gardening and simple family. It was a really great childhood in a way because my parents were home a lot they had a home business and and then my dad traded in his offset printing to let for letterpress which is going way back 100 years into you know hand set type and funky uh simple printing that uh, he made a living off and raised his kids
1: wild huh? that's yeah. fascinating wow
0: yeah my mom is still a little bit of a legend in shanagan oh yeah how so she passed away a few years ago uh four years ago and she um was very vocal and very loving and she's super political and she had her own views and she was an herbalist like before anybody was doing that. And, and, uh, and also very political and, and really, uh, you know, anti-logging anti motorboats on the lake. Uh, Just waiting
2: for Franz's parents to come into this. Cause they uh, totally- I'm sure they knew each other. I'm
0: sure they knew each other. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she was amazing. Wow. And, uh, and would not, she didn't, she was the kind of person that would speak her mind and she didn't hold back. And, but also with lots of love, there was never, she, you know, if she offended somebody, she would, she was there for them. So it wasn't like, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but she was amazing. When did you, uh, when did you move there or when did your parents move there? Oh, um, so they
1: built a house. I'd say they started building it pretty much the year I was born. So I was born in 82. I think they probably got the property and started working on it around. I'd say, Eighty, eighty-two in between that area. So they, yep, they moved yeah. there from Victoria. They were living, actually, funny sort of side, side story. Andrew and I, uh, many years ago, were roommates. And Remy can attest to this as well, too. Okay. We lived on Bank Street in Victoria. Oh, yeah. Um, My brother lived on Bank Street. Yeah, an apartment? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 well, it was the top level of a house above a Jewish community center and a violin nice. shop. Or was it a yeah. violin shop? Yeah, it
2: was just in the corner of a
1: bank in Oak Bay. Yeah. And and my dad lived for many years, I think, with my mom as well, with my dad's mom in a house on Bank Street. So it kind of full circled for that. Oh, so it was kind of neat. I but yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. At the other end of the street, which is now, I think, uh, half sadly a parking lot. But I saw photos of it from uh, back in the uh, 70s Wasn't and there 80s. was
0: there a grocery store flower shop there for years on the corner of that bank? Yeah. Yeah. There it still is. Yeah. Like it's been there forever. Yeah. 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 So you guys have been doing podcasts since you were like 10 or something? <laughs>
2: we're just finally putting out some episodes we've been yeah we've been practicing <laughs> our, our craft for been working minutes. on this from behind the couch yeah, yeah for sure and now it's time to launch Thanks. we're, we're yeah. really good yeah <laughs> mark if you want to get yourself some wine i think you should just do it yeah just... i really think i should yeah. yeah good to see you cheers fellas cheers cheers what do you
0: have there mark i got a uh <laughs> some wine that a guy named kyle made this uh tall tale cool Pretty. Uh, he likes to tell tall tales with his wine. He's a uh, an independent winemaker who doesn't have a winery, making low intervention wines in the Okanagan. There's a bear and a see the bear and a yeah. moose. Yeah, a- oh, I remember. Beautiful. I was
2: I was looking at the uh, I was looking at those labels on your on your website or off of uh, like bounced off of your portfolio website the other day. Nice. Yeah,
0: yeah we had we parted ways i don't rep him anymore he doesn't he's kind of i'm not sure what he's doing right now but he's he was the assistant winemaker at liquidity and really started to scratch out a business out of out of making wine independently and not, and you know without a home so uh but this is a syrah it's called syrah nouveau 2017 It's basically a syrah that's un which is super rare is it good yeah it's really juicy it took a while and when it first when he first released it it had a bit of a uh what do you call it like a kind of a pine flavor like a bit of pine quality to it that was a bit too strong and it mellowed mm-hmm. out over time very nice It's really rare you're getting a syrah that's on oak like that's so unusual low intervention the idea is just less oak more fruit it yeah, tastes beautiful cool. so
1: i i don't want to get us too far off of it i'm very curious in the same vein of of the knowledge you've accumulated let's go back to how did you how did you get from growing up in shonegan to where you are now like where did that that love for it was a pretty good life from? i
0: mean i was working i worked um it was i don't know if you remember but like in the 80s and 90s people worked in restaurants so they could go and like ski or go and travel or you know, move around and for me I love the idea that I could bounce around and I worked in the states a bit and went to Australia and just it did, did a lot a bit of traveling and also I was doing it like in those days I was doing it for the I guess to be around people but also for the gratuities and for it was like in kind of a job where I can go for four or five hours a night and have some fun and and uh, and then it turned into a career just over time and also there was a couple of points uh, a couple of places in my life where things really changed and I wasn't expecting them to and Uh, I think in the restaurant part of things, I was a server, I was a career server for years and that allowed me a lot of freedom and it was fun and all that. But I, but I didn't really like, I didn't really kind of get, get it until I had a kid. I I have a son who's 30 now and his name is Jude. And uh, when he was about two, I was working at April Point Lodge on Quadra Island. I I worked there for 10 seasons and uh, he was uh, maybe a year old, year and a half old, two years old. And I started realizing that yeah, <laughs> that I wasn't really a really good waiter, <laughs> and I wasn't really re- that great at hospitality, and I was just chips. <laughs> a good time. It was great, and then I, I realized it dawned on me one day that it's about service of people. It's about looking after people, and so everything changed from then. And then I started. Then I started really enjoying it and embracing serving, and and uh, and then and I became a manager pretty quick after that. But I really like to. Um, entertain people and also learn from people and then share good things. And that's kind of the, and the end of the day, it's about sharing stuff for me. I really enjoy that. And that's what kind of translates into the wine world as well. I used to love coming across new things and sharing them Be like, Oh man. I came across this, like, I mean, for the first time I had truffles, I was like, Oh my God, you know? And then, so I convinced the chef at, uh, at able point to buy some, and then we, we shared them with people and it was a really, it was the coolest thing. And then we started finding a wine pairing for it. And yeah, I think that's kind of when I transitioned. And then I, and then I, but I, you know, and then I hit a point, I think just after I worked with you, Franz, where I worked in, I'd worked in a number of restaurants. I'd kind of peeked out at a place called the Rosemead. Right. Oh, the Rosemead. I I
1: completely forgot about the Rosemead. That was like, that was that was that was the stuff of legends for a little while there about how cool. everything yeah. went Well, the the restaurant itself, but then when everything kind of went down a little bit, I remember that being like, everybody was talking about that for a couple of seasons. It It was a
0: weird, it was a weird situation. It was awesome. And before that, I'd I'd been doing a bit of traveling and I started getting into wine a little bit more, but I was always like, I was a waiter in restaurants be going like, how come the fucking agent goes right to the managers all the time? Because we're the ones selling the wine. And, And I was always intimidated by the whole wine scene. And I would be like, I just was uh, avoided it. And even the pretentiousness around food, I thought was, there was a lot of kind of false power behind it that I felt like I just didn't enjoy it. And so it wasn't until I uh, met Roger Dossman at Alderley Alderley Vineyard and also went on a trip to Sonoma through Fairmont Hotels that I started realizing that wine can be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. I, I think, I think that's, that's the common thread that we keep hearing is that that tipping point when people who are, are, pseudo or fairly ensconced career wise in the industry. And they have that, that tiny, tiny little tiny click on moment when they realize that, Hey, it's either, it's either time to move on or it's time to put my all into it. And I see the path to that all or whatever, you know, like that, that, uh, that seems to be that, that beautiful moment when things change.
0: Yeah, it started, later. it started later for me. I wish I'd started earlier in some ways, but it did start mm-hmm. late. Uh, but, you know, when I, it happened, and also, you know, managing restaurants, uh, starting to look after people and, and looking after a family of people and, like, you know, hiring great people to work with and, and uh, overseeing the direction of a restaurant was really, that's when I got more creative with it and really started enjoying it but you're right. It's like, there's crucial moments. And, uh, and I can look back now, but at the time I had no idea. I was just like, you know, <laughs> I was just kind of bouncing along and, uh, and well, there's there's so good.
1: little, there's so little information that you get even from your peers about that. I mean, like depending on who you wrap yourself with, you can go either way, right? Like there's no, there's no tried and true, uh, playbook depending no, on yeah, your I scenario. Can, I
0: can hate, like the, the working in restaurants where there was, um, there was just an attitude by either management or, or working in a group where nobody ever, you know, the servers had their sections throughout the restaurant and they competed with each other mm-hmm. and there wasn't a team effort. And I, it wasn't until I worked in, I worked in the States for a while in Boulder, Colorado and in Seattle and two restaurants that were team service. And they were really, um, they weren't high end restaurants, but they were up there and it wasn't about formal service, even though it was about service services, well, making sure people had a good time. Uh, it was a, it was a, a gang style service where everybody supported each other. And that blew me away. And so when I came back to Victoria from there, I ended up um, just, I, I couldn't work in an environment that wasn't like that. Like I really needed to be part of a group that had a goal that um, were there to, to, you know, to wow people. And, and, uh, uh, and that's where it got interesting and enjoyable.
2: Yeah, it's funny how you, with the, uh with hospitality, you, you go along you're kind of like one of these days, I'll, I'll find out what it is. And I'll, and until then I'm going to keep yeah. doing this gig and it's cool and it's good enough. And then, yeah. and then eventually you realize you're like, Oh, this is what it is. Like yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, already, I'm already
0: here. Yeah. I was reluctant for sure. <laughs>
2: of course, <laughs> Cause it feels like, you know, you're, you're, it, there's just a stigma around, you know, the business where it's, you know it's a it's a you're in motion you're it's a trend it's a transitory career and you're like well yeah definitely are you definitely. In, are you in school sweetie what do you what are you studying you're like I'm a yeah. grown-ass I'm a grown-ass man
1: like yeah.
2: I'm, yeah I'm not I'm not in school <laughs> this is it
1: yeah 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 well and so few people actually take that course too because there is a lot of just transientness right so I mean th- those of us who, who have made it a, a lifelong passion or a career it's uh, yeah it is it's it's something different right
0: yeah, I remember the the attitude they get from like professionals coming into restaurants. And then, and also in Canada, it's different than the United States. In the States, my experience was that, you know, you're a business person, you're a waiter in a restaurant, they know you're there to make tips, they know you're there to, to upsell, they know like it's a business. And so there's a respect for servers there and that wasn't in Canada. In Canada, it felt more like maybe it had come from you know, colonial style service where servants were this, were this, were the people that served and cooked and, and cleaned. And, and, uh, and so I felt like in the eighties and nineties working in restaurants, depending on where you were, but it was um, probably it wasn't until keg came around that it got more fun, but it was like, you know, you, you were doing more formal service, tableside service, and people were really nice and everything, but you were kind of like a servant a little bit, you know, you were, yeah. there, and I, and I kind of, and I had a hard time as a young person, putting up with that. <laughs> I was just like, God, I'm felt comfortable with it. And then, uh, but working in the States, it's a whole different story. Yeah. There's like, as long as you look, you know, you make it work for people and you have a, they have a good time. Uh, they're, they're dependent on you to guide their friends and family through a, a great experience. And, uh, but now it's like, that's all gone. It seems like, I don't know if you guys been out lately Well, I mean, there's no going out much, but, uh, it seemed it, to me, it seems like the service is really, uh, the experience in a restaurant is really changing and disappearing.
2: Yeah, I don't know. The last time I was out was at uh, Chorizo, and uh, we had we had an awesome time because we sat yeah. up at the bar and yeah, hung out, hung out with uh, Steven. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah.
2: great. So that was that was my most recent restaurant experience, and it was fantastic.
0: It's a weird time.
2: Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's pivotal. I mean, it's all of the businesses are getting tested, and the the strong will survive. The creative will survive. The ones that really want to be here will survive. And And the ones that are funded
0: there have deeper pockets. Will survive for sure. This is
2: true. Yeah, this is very true for for sure. And it—I mean—it hurts. uh, It's hurting a lot of a lot of small businesses. And I mean, like, I don't know who I was talking to. I was talking to a rep uh, at the store the other day, and we were kind of talking along the same line. I'm like, these you know, most of these restaurants, like in the best case scenario, we're still hanging on by threads. Yeah. Like, yeah. Now they're down
0: by 50% plus. Or 30,
2: exactly. Yeah. I mean, and so you have these, you know, you've, you've taken this kind of already dire situation and, and just amplified it so much more. Um, uh, but I don't know.
0: Yeah. I, have been up and down for the last six months or I've been like, you know, so I get excited when, you know, Castro is super creative and has something cool going on and, uh, and he's, and he's innovative and he's figuring it out how to, how to make a living and, and provide, uh, you know, creative experiences. And, uh, and I'm so impressed and it keeps me going what he's doing. Then I talked to, you know, I talked to Brad yesterday, uh, who's so Lolo and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about the death of a culture and it really is true. Like he's right. You know, it's like, there's a, this is a culture that's dying in some way and we don't know how it's going to come back. Yeah
1: those 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 of us who are who are kind of left to hold the torch during these times you know like there's the, there's a the struggle to do things like you referenced with like the true dedication for service and quality yeah. and and creating a dining experience that people want to come back for but you can you can you can try as hard as you might, but I mean, if the sales aren't there, and if people aren't into that, and if, if totally. everybody is is pivoting to that that quick service model, then those yeah. those of those old dogs of us who are still trying to make that work are are it, it's it's
0: it's a tough go. It was already marginal before. Now it's just yeah. now it's like it's like now it's taken us right through that through to something new that we don't know what's going to be.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and I have to I have to say, just because you mentioned him, my most recent culinary dining experience was with castro as well and uh yeah. man that was that was fantastic he his his service team was fan it was just spot on yeah. and it, the food it, was spot on like everything yeah. about the experience was phenomenal and i think it's all due to leadership so at that point yeah it's just kind of a a, a call to arms for people to still enjoy dining out as much as they yeah. can and support those kind of businesses yeah. right like
0: tell us about the uh the kitchen party mark Ah, uh, yeah. So Castro told you about. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was fun. That was. A, so one of the things that I enjoy the most out of working in restaurants uh, was pairing wine with food. And I had used to have uh, I'll refer back to my kind of like where it dawned on me how great it was. And it's, I think it's a physical experience as well. Uh, when I was working at the Rosemead, I worked with Richard Lutman, oh, Chef Lutman. He was, was incredible. a great dining room yeah Sorry and to so, yeah we would it would, and I got into wine that's how I really got really got into wine and got into food there and that's and i and it was kind of by chance and it's a funny story, but um it worked out really good and so and I was dedicated, so I'd go in at ten in the morning on a Friday or Saturday, and we would start pairing a tasty menu uh with wines and beverages uh in the morning and i would and i <laughs> every time I'd look at him and I'd say life doesn't get better than this, man. Like we're pairing dishes at 10 in the morning that we're going to, prepare that we're going to de- deliver tonight to 70, 80 people. And, uh, and we're going to create this on the fly. And so, yeah, so that's what I did with Castro. We had a good time. Uh, I brought in 10 wines to pair, uh, with his dish, knowing probably that only one or two would work, but I wasn't sure. And it's always, a, uh, in my experience, it's always been kind of a process of discovery with some basics. And so, uh, his dish paired with a Riesling, my sweetest wine that I had. And, and, uh, and, and, it was fun working with him in the kitchen. We had 10 wines out, narrowed them down to two. And then we got to the synchromesh Riesling and it paired really nicely. It was pretty close. And then he just started tweaking the dish. And, and then when we, I went back a week later, well, maybe two weeks later before the competition, we were a couple of days out before the judges came and he brought the dish out and he had his kitchen guys up there and we're all sitting at the table. And I'm like, Oh no! This doesn't taste the same. Something's wrong. Did you change the dish? Did you know what's going on? Is the this, a this, uh, sauce like have more? Has it got has it got more salt in it or something? Because there was a real. Um, it wasn't bad, but it was definitely off of what it'd been. And we found out. We discovered that what the difference was. We played with there's uh, a lentil dish with uh, sable fish and curry. And we oh, found it.
1: That's, that's what I ate when I when
0: I dined there. Uh, it's so good, hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah so what I tied the what what worked with the wine that tied it in was I said, you know, is there butter in the sauce? What's the emulsifier? What's the what's kind of uh, what's the richness in the sauce? He goes, well, it's coconut milk. I was like, oh, yeah. right on. Add some more coconut milk, <laughs> and they did, <laughs> and it paired. Really, and it was we were all like, oh yeah, that's it. It paired beautifully. It needed some sweet richness, right? So, yeah, it was, was a cool. delicious dish. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a really great person. And he's like an example. And it's funny because I'm working between quite a few restaurants and I'll go and talk to like, well, Doug, you know, Doug, by your place. Uh, and he's like, yeah. and, I, and I said, well, you know, this is what he's doing. He's selling wine and the, and the um, for, to take out. And so Doug sets up a few shelves to sell, sell wine and they're kind of working with each other for ideas. And that to me is, is uh, gives me hope that, you know, restaurants are sharing ideas of how to kind of survive through this time. So may I ask who, who's Doug? uh Beauregard sorry Doug Doug Much he owns Beauregard right uh, provisions and cafe and in, in Brentwood he's finding it's interesting he's finding that uh now uh this week it's all about provisions hmm. so people hmm. come in they grab and now they're uh, du- uh is it dumpling drop have you guys tried yeah. those
1: yeah he yeah got, yeah he's stocked out of those most of the time yeah that's that's kind of one of the new moves that a lot of places are doing There, either every every restaurant I know especially going into winter um, they're focusing on their retail products, something that they can sell elsewhere. And there is a a growing community of people who are basically the, the holders of the product. There's a number of people who are curating these items and stuff like that. It's pretty cool how everybody's trying to kind of dig deep together and, uh, and get through winter with those kind of, those kind of new ideas.
0: Do you, do you guys think that the consumers will, are getting it?
1: Ah, uh, I'm having a tough time seeing it. And also, just simply because there's so much out there right now. Everybody is yeah. trying to do that right now. Okay, yeah. So it is it is a little bit challenging. But at the same time, I think I think there's there's enough people out there who are, are looking to stock up for the week as opposed to dining out. And if they yeah. can get their hands on some real quality stuff, I think yeah. that it's there. I just it's, it's hard. I don't know yet. It's hard for me to tell from what I've seen
0: people have really had to change their, their, their patterns of thinking and, and doing. It's so bizarre. It's really a very weird time. Liquor stores are good though.
1: Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I made the mistake of it. So that when the COVID first hit, I've I've been really heavy in restaurants. I think I told you this, Andrew, and, uh, and I've, I can't help it. I just like I'm drawn to restaurants and I love supporting stores. I, we have a handful of stores that are really great to work with. And, um, but I'm not, I wasn't that guy. They're trying to get into every store with my, with our BC wines and spirits and ciders. And, and, uh, and then I just got caught up in restaurants. I love hanging out in restaurants. I love entertaining in restaurants. I love the people and the kitchens and, you know, working with chefs is pretty cool. And, and so when COVID happened, I was like, shit.
2: Yeah. I better, (laughs) uh, I better change my strategy.
0: Yeah. I hope actually. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so, well, I haven't really changed that much, but, uh, well, I mean I, I, really, I want center. to support restaurants through this. I really think that the culture can't die. Really people need it. People need to go out. Yeah. Well, it's a human
2: experience, man. It's 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 yeah. part of our tribe. It's you know, yeah. eating out and being with people and, and it wow. isn't it isn't just for the folks that go and spend the money and get the experience. It's for the the givers of hospitality too. Those people yeah, uh, those people get something from it too. Yeah. yeah I mean and I'm sure uh, to the point you were making just a little moment ago um, a lot of the principles that have made you a successful wine salesman in uh, in restaurants also would apply to retail and you yeah. know being able to yeah. come in and you know offer that element of hospitality goes a long way because I've you know it's it's very easy to notice the difference between uh styles of people that you know, sure. bring products in and it's it's noticeable yeah. those folks who you know, take a little bit of extra time and energy. And- yeah.
0: Yeah. I've never been a salesperson. I've always, in fact, when I was uh, working in restaurants, I would, especially when I started buying wine, I'd be like, man, I don't know how these reps do it. I told you guys know Marcus Sawatsky. Yeah. I told him years ago, I don't know if he remembers this, but I told him, I said, if I ever want, if I ever become a rep, like, kill me. <laughs> I don't know how you guys do it. You know, like, no security. You know, it's like, it's just like, I don't know how. Like, you don't, it just seems crazy. And, uh,
2: And then happens now. Hey, everybody. It's the part of the show where we say thank you to our Patreons, the folks that keep us in business and keep this show running smoothly. So without further ado, here is the list of our wonderful monthly sponsors. Callie Philp. If that was as awful for you as it was for me, you might want to consider supporting us at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash in the weeds podcast. For as little as four dollars a month, you can get Franz and I closer to our goal of not working for someone else. Enjoy the rest of the show. You uh you you had your hospitality background, uh, you determined that you you know, this is a place you wanted to be. And then you were at the Delta and you made the switch to having a wine portfolio. No, no, it's worse no, than no. that. Not it's at pretty all. Depressing. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, uh, so I went from Delta. I, actually, Delta almost killed me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, and also the weird thing about that too is I was thinking about that today is that uh, Del- I was working at Delta when the recession started. So I went from oh. Fairmont and uh, got hired by Delta and I was pretty excited by bringing my hospitality skills and creativity and event to do some events and stuff like that. And then the recession had just hit and all of a sudden the hotel gets shrunk (laughs) and, you know, the kitchens all of a sudden has to bring in like prepared salads and can't prep everything. And also we go from a nice dining room to being, you know, a, a restaurant that services, you know, government employees and business class and, and quicker service and, and, key, and, the, and everything just shrunk and the cost shrunk. And we're, you know, we were, <laughs> I don't remember we were managing, you know, with less people, it was really tight. And, uh, and I had had an idea that I'd go there and learn about the uh, more executive skills and more strategic skills and in, in managing a, a bigger operation, multi, uh, you know, multi outlets or whatever. Right. And, uh, and that really turned me off because it was just bad timing. It was really bad timing to be be in a hotel at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I went to, I, and that was my second corporate hotel job. And I, I got a job at Rock Rock Resort in Euculet. I left, I left Victoria for Uqulit, thinking, okay, I'll work for an independent. They've got a really nice dining room, and they have a great chef uh, at the time. And so I was like, so I went up there and had a really good time. Started started a, a good wine program. I was start, bought some nice wines. They were a pretty. The wine program was pretty. Beautiful. Forward. Beautiful and, resort. Uh, yeah, beautiful resort. Uh, but it didn't stay long. It didn't last long. And I just I basically kind of burnt out. I, I hit a a point in my life where I just needed to stop working in restaurants and hotels. And I didn't know it. <laughs> I had no idea. And so the day I got in my car to come home, I was still living in Victoria. We hadn't bought, we were just gonna buy a house in it We didn't do that. And I was on my way home and my back seized I couldn't even get out of the car. I basically rolled out of the what? car. And I, so I took a year off. I was like, okay, I, I got to, this is like the time of my life. I got to take a break. And so I went on EI and took a year off. And, uh, and then um, at the end of my EI, I was like, oh man, I got I, I to gotta go back to hotels. I don't think so. I kept applying for Fairmont jobs all over the world. I was like, okay, I got to do something. It wasn't, nothing was working. And I was looking around, going, this isn't going to work. And so I got, had an opportunity to get into a, a small business program called the Rieger Group. Have you heard of them? No, they oh. were uh, they were a business consulting group and they had this branch that worked through EI that would help educate people about uh, starting up a small business. Hmm. And I got, I was the last of two people to get into the program before it went online. And so I got the luxury of working with, I don't know, six or seven like top notch instructors <laughs> on EI. It was crazy. That's and crazy. Uh, and I barely got in. I, I said I thought, OK, I'm getting out of the restaurant business I'll, I'll do a business plan where I'll maybe I'll be a concierge for seniors, or I'll you know I'll find some way to help people. And so I I did a business plan. I wrote up a business plan for this kind of a business, and I took it to them and presented it. And they said, "No, it doesn't work. There's no money in it. You couldn't find the money in it." And I was like, "No, I couldn't find the money in it." <laughs> every, time, every time I went to a to like a seniors facility, they were like, "Well, you know, I don't know. You know it didn't seem like a. It was it was just too." too general of a of a business and and uh, anyway so they said look t- uh, mark you got 24 hours to p- submit another business plan and then you can uh continue in the program and you would have access to a micro loan through van city to start a business hmm. i called my friend pamela do you guys know pamela sanderson yeah she she, she ran uh, cascadia stores we worked together at fairmont i said would you buy wine for me <laughs> i decided well because i i also, uh, Stacy who was working at Hillside Liquor, had a friend that um, was connected to Terra Rosa Imports, which is John Clarity's import company. And he owns one of the best liquor stores in the country hmm. uh, uh, yeah, on Robson, uh, Robson Street. So anyway, uh, I said, would you buy wine for me? I need, a, I need to like create a business plan and you'd be my customer. And she goes, well, probably not, but maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And it took a long time to sell wine to her. But anyway, I, I submitted another business plan. The next day, they loved it. They said, yeah, this is more natural for you. Obviously, you have experience in restaurants and and you know all these people in the industry. And so I went out and I basically started with an import portfolio part-time for very little money uh, for one day a week. And then I hooked up with uh, Gary Oaks Winery on Salt Spring. Hmm. and started repping them and had no idea what I was doing. Just asked everybody how it went and kind of knew from a customer's perspective uh, what, um, I didn't like, you know, I worked with agents yeah. that would come in and, and just waste time and try and kind of not know it, not ever ask you what you are interested in or what works. And then also knew a few reps close enough. I could ask a bunch of questions and that's how I started. Cool. Hmm. Yeah. I had no idea. I had no money. I had a, a little car. I had, I barely afford a laptop. And, uh, and I'd burned all my savings. I was pretty freaked out. And then I just started working really hard, started doing whatever I could to make it work.
1: Yeah, I think I remember at some point there, I, I might have, as I alluded to earlier, I might have, you and I might have crossed paths and I might have seen you sort of around the start of that journey. Yeah. And I kind of remember you giving me like a very, very like, holy shit. Yeah, but it was it was like a, a glimpse. It was a small glimpse into the holy shitness of what you were undertaking. And even at that point, I was like, that's ballsy. And that was that, you know, like, just stepping out, like you said, yeah. and and dealing with the fact that, you know, it's it's not a, it's certainly not a money maker and something that, you know, like you're taking a chance on.
0: Yeah, that's- I had very little, yeah, I had very little income for the first few years. And then and the other thing is, uh, a lot of people in Victoria, Victoria's is a bit clicky that way, where people wouldn't buy from me just because I was new. And that was right. so, that shocked me. People I like, people they were my friends. I thought they were my friends. <laughs> I was like, come on. Yeah, you, you, know, the, you that would be an good, advantage. Good like, these are good producers. And and Terra Rosa imports was some of the best wines that were imported. Uh, this guy, John, had been importing uh some of the best California, Oregon, Burgundy, Italian wines for years that I used to buy for restaurants. And so I was like, I was pretty excited, but it was a recession. I could how do you sell a sixty dollar bottle of wine like wholesale? Uh, during a recession. So it was <laughs> tight, but, um, like I started seeing what's happening in Vancouver and that's how I connected with Lock and Worth and I started repping them right from the start. They had just started their winery and a lot of it was serendipity. I'd, I started repping one good producer and they, you know, nobody knew then who they were. We didn't know. He had great dreams that we didn't know what he was going to do. And it just, it's evolved over time. And it's been, uh, it's been a really incredible.
2: Do you find that, uh, you you search out these clients or do they do they no, at this point they come, they come knocking yeah.
0: no it's just about kind of keeping my eyes open and and being open and also the right people like for me it's not uh it sounds kind of flaky but it's really true for me i guess i'm flaky uh i it's the people <laughs> that are the most important and if i sense that they have a that they're genuine and really care and have strong values that i can relate to then it just it just happens naturally and I have wrapped up for other producers that just, there was no connection and I tried it and it was the right thing and never worked. So it really has to, it's like a relationship. And it really does start out like a, you know, when you first meet somebody and you don't know each other and you're figuring it out, how to communicate. And, and, um, and the ones that have given me the room to kind of do things the way I do them have been the more successful as long as they're, Focused on quality and integrity, and but I've never actually gone out and chased chased anybody down. It's always been either the people have come to me, or it's through somebody that I'm already representing, or I have a discovery. Like I was up at Forty Knots this summer, and I just well, just before the summer started, and, and I was like, man, nobody knows about these guys in Victoria. These are these guys are doing extraordinary things, and uh, and I was like, I have to do it. And They're like, well, we're looking, so that's perfect. And, and hmm. yeah. Forty
2: Knots is a is a is a weird one. Their wine is. Super good. Yeah. You're almost like, what's the gimmick? Like what, (laughs) what, what's what's the, I I
1: was, I was actually just going to say you, you've mentioned two of Bethany's favorite vineyards right now, 40 knots and um, uh, Lockenworth. Those are are two of her favorites right now. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear.
0: Well, Lockenworth was, was amazing because I didn't know anything about them and that was through Treve Ring. Treve is our, like, she's our wine writer. She's our, most accomplished wine writer, wine traveler, wine, okay. just incredible person. And she's got such good values. And uh, she knew Matt from Lockenworth before I knew him. And she just mentioned my name to him when he was looking for some help in Victoria. And I was like, and I got the wines the first, this is a six, seven years ago, six years ago. I got those wines. that it was like a white label with no writing on it, except on the back and it's kind of cloudy. And I was like, Oh shit.
2: <laughs> How's this going to work in terms of, natural wine yeah. trend yeah. low intervention yeah. that is a long time ago
0: it is it totally you is know?
2: people are like what's yeah. what's wrong with this wine i mean i remember even a couple months ago i had somebody bring in a bottle of sinker like this wine's bad it's all cloudy and i'm like <laughs> okay I, I didn't argue with the person i was like yeah. okay whatever i don't i don't care buy something else like let's
0: let's let's enjoy it now
2: <laughs> well that's exactly right i was like
1: <laughs> Not my problem.
2: Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah i mean it's it's uh it's seven or eight years ago is a is fairly long in the continuum of consumers tastes
1: totally
0: yeah people were um and it's funny how quickly the trend has grown too it's it's incredible how fast it's growing
2: it's, it is but crazy his, i had no idea. idea
0: yeah his wines are are they out of the gate, they're super high acid on purpose. That's how he, that's how he wants them that way. He, you know, he really manipulate the wines much and he likes to pick a little earlier if he can on some of the varietals and, and he wants to be fresh. And when I first got them, they were, uh, the Sam was so acidic. I was like, man, people like this. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And I hadn't experienced high acid wines except for a few. And I, and of course I'm dealing with people on Vancouver Island that, want to have like often a lot of people in Vancouver want a sweet red or they want a wine that they call balanced and dry, but it's not right. So um, anyway, so I was like, how's this going to work? And, and sales didn't go very well for the first few months. And then of course the wine started coming around just as people were starting to move to Victoria that had been to Vancouver and knew the wines and, and uh, it just, you know, started slow, but it picked up. And then when it picked up, it really picked up. And he was kind of like the first BC low intervention guy that was introduced to the island, I guess, six or seven years ago, maybe a little longer. And he's they sell through pretty quick. Hmm. And then uh, and then I got Nickel because he's the assistant winemaker at Nickel. And one day he said, hey, do you want to rep Nickel? And I said, well, I'd lo- I w- always, I would love to. That's incredible. And, he, and, uh, and it turned out that I had, at the Rosemead, I had hosted Alex Nickel for a winemaker's dinner, the original oh, owner. Oh, crazy. Huh. And that's what got me into pouring wine in restaurants because he walked around the restaurant. I was, so I I was the manager and I was kind of hosting and I was helping service and coordinating service and that sort of thing. And so he's walking around in his green farmer pants and he's pouring his wine, his capriccio, this really light wine. He had St. Laurent wine. I think it was St. Laurent and uh, he's pouring it around and people are just looking at him like a God. And I'm like, Oh, that looks like fun. That's a great <laughs> idea. I, thought, I could be the wine steward here and I could watch service and oversee it and also bring all the beverage revenues up because nobody was selling wine at the time. It just opened and, and they didn't really have a strong wine program. So it's so weird how this full circle came. And then, of course, we do this dinner. It's, it's quite a nice dinner. And then he comes back the next year with the new owners, um, uh, Ross and Nicole, who were from the area who ended up buying it from them. And introduced them just as they were buying nickel, and that was my experience way back. And then all of a sudden, now I'm representing them. I've been representing them for four years now, four or five years with nickel.
2: You were talking earlier about uh, about the kind of pretentiousness about wine, but that that rarely translates down to the winemaker. Like usually, you have a winemaker who is like uh-huh. gumboot Johnny. Dirty yeah. fingernails like hosing yeah. shit down driving tractor and yeah. that's what he does but then the customer experience is so far from that it's like so far it, from it, that it gets it gets totally lost and misrepresented because what you're you know the this miss like i don't know i mean i think it's the middleman trying to you know doing what they can to to add add dollars and cents to the experience but yeah marketing the marketing and, and yeah. adding layers of cost and all yeah. that stuff but it's yeah. uh it's so unfortunate because you know to your point you're, you're talking about this the you know mr nickel the winemaker and, and, and this dude's like yeah like you said in like green khakis with dirty fingernails yeah. having a good time and
0: and how good is that yeah, yeah roger rossman really was like that did you guys meet roger he had Alderley. he was the kind of guy on the yeah. island that really uh he was the solid producer for you know when there was you know some a lot of Inconsistencies and and the kind of mom and pop beginning of Vancouver Island wine and and uh, he uh, took it all away from me. He was just like, "It's just wine. I'm a farmer. Of course, there's a lot more to it, but he didn't. Uh, he was just a hands-on guy. And you know, I went to visit him. I knew nothing about wine. He had me grafting vines. <laughs> My first visit to a winery. I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Sure. <laughs> I've yeah. And he's just like, he's just, and he says, you know, it's no big deal. And I and it's like, okay. And I really trusted him and, and got behind his wines in restaurants. And I would pour his Pinot Gris to Americans in a, in a paper bag. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: they come in the oh, restaurant. That is and this fantastic. Is really, yeah. This is like in the nineties when uh, people wouldn't even like Americans wouldn't even drink BC wine. And so they come in the restaurant. I'd say, well, you know, we've got a, some good BC wines. and I've got this local wine. It's really good. Oh no, no, that's okay. Just bring me the J. Lohr. Or bring me the, you know, Kendall Jackson or whatever and and uh uh and so I'd bring out the his Pinot Gris, green, it was a blush color, it was a nice rose color, and I'd bring it in a paper bag and I'd just pour a little bit in their glass and just you know, enjoy it. And they'd, oh, what's this is nice? What is this? And oh it was just made around the corner, you know. This is when I was in Nanaimo. And uh people were really resistant and now things have changed.
1: I, I get I get that we need we need rules, regulations, and in many cases we need brightly colored tissue paper to wrap our things in. But yeah. man, it's so much nicer when you have a real experience with real people, whether it be beverage yeah. or food or anything in that yeah. industry. Like if it's just take tick, tick the mask off and just enjoy the experience,
0: it's so much better. For sure. For sure. One of the things I used to hate in restaurants was I remember going to a restaurant in town and this sommelier, it wasn't really a sommelier, but he's the wine guy in the restaurant basically bullied me into an $80 bottle of wine. I was on a date and I was like, <laughs> and I, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I was like that was no fun. I was so stressed out. I was sweating. I mean, this is awful. I was on a date. This is this crazy. I was really young. Uh, and then, uh, and then also when I was young tasting like some of the best wines in the world, I didn't even know I was tasting. I was working at, at a resort where we had, we were pouring some of the best Bordeaux, best vintage of Bordeaux ever or rated whatever. The, and yeah. I, just, I was like, well, what do you, I don't get it. Like this is tastes like wine. I don't kind understand it. It's a lot of it is the reception of it being open in the right time and the right, and that's where hospitality comes in and, you know, connecting with people first and then letting them have their own experience. A lot of it's timing, I think.
1: Yeah, to have somebody on the other end of it actually deliver the product, as you say, and, and do it justice is, yeah, I that's the, that's that beautiful part of hospitality because it, it definitely increases the value of that experience for sure.
2: Yeah, it's like the, it's the motor oil. It really just like greases yeah. all the parts together, makes everything it increase. It makes it, what do they say? Like the more than the sum of its parts. You were a dream weaver. You know, you're you're weaving a star blanket, (laughs) and uh, it's when it it works good. It's amazing.
0: Well, there's something to be said about the physical experience as well. When you've had a pairing that just like blows you away, or when you've tasted a, you know, tomato, an heirloom tomato that's just like perfectly ripe, and your body remembers it. Your body knows it. Like yeah, your
2: your olfactory system has a great library. Yeah.
0: And if you can allow people that, if you can allow, if you can dress that up a little bit and allow, like, you know, when we've done, when I used to do tasty menus and, you know, when people would be part of an experience, sometimes it would be, I don't know, it sounds crazy, but it would be like beyond our everyday lives. It would be pretty extraordinary. And people would remember that for a long, long time. I've had wines that have, I've had a weird experience where it's like, Oh my God, I, I'll never experience this again. But then I was open to it. But then when I was in my twenties <laughs> trying, you know, great dinking some of these great, great Bordeaux's I had no idea. <laughs> I was like, I guess yeah. it's supposed to be good.
2: <laughs> well, I wonder, I wonder what that is. Like what is it about that mindset that prepares you for like, that allows you to appreciate that? I mean, you could be, you know, you could be a, a kid bored to tears listening to, like the oh man i don't know like the london symphony orchestra playing some great piece of music and you're sitting there picking your nose being like i hate this and then you know and then 30 years later you come back and you're brought to tears by this piece of art so timing hey timing and yeah it's special it's special though because it it isn't just the it isn't just the it it's the it's the setting and this and the where you are emotionally (laughs) and what you're what you're into it's it's really cool.
0: Well, wine is so much that way. You know, I've had wines that taste, you know, I'll drink them at home and I don't get the same experience as I've had in a, at a, you know, sitting with a winemaker in the cellar or at a restaurant or something. Mark, tell us,
1: uh, tell us a little bit about your business, about uh, Storied Wines and Spirits. Uh,
0: yeah. We uh, haven't actually a, got
1: into that yet. Good sure, one, yeah.
0: <laughs> Storied Wines and Spirits is a, uh, it's, a, it's, a it's a, I'm a, a liquor, I guess I'm a wine cider spirits agency working with sustainable small family producers uh, okay. in BC. and I work with right now I'm working with 14 producers Wow, uh, and uh, and the common theme is uh, they're all family businesses they're all you know doing their darndest to make the best products they can make and uh, BC agriculture is a big part of it as well that we don't talk about very much in sales Okanagan apples Vancouver of Ireland apples BC honey before COVID, we were really were, and I, we'll be interesting to see what happens after. But we're um, BC has really become a craft beverage region in the world. There's just there's so much available. There's so many different things. As you guys know, it's like it's it's outrageous.
1: Yeah, and, and yeah. growing. It seems like every moment, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's down. really it's really blown up. Like almost every region has its own, you know, uh, whatever the not agritourism, but uh, gastro tourism like yeah mouth tourism yeah yeah, so, it so spread yeah starting <laughs> i like
1: i like, like mouth tourism by the way i just wanted to mouth get, i've never heard that before <laughs> that's a good one thank you oh well, you know I'm like writing in, yeah, that down put it, right yeah.
0: now he didn't say oral that's good
2: I, yeah. <laughs> no but if i if i would have thought of that i would have said that
1: so that's only because ah, i didn't have that ah, kind of oral gastronomy.
0: yeah oral tourism nice <laughs> I think about driving around uh, Cameron camera taggart road where where unsworth is And my well, was it would have been a 1972 Austin Mini, or maybe it was a Datsun 510 or something. When I was 19 years old, with an extra old stock in my hand, driving (laughs) Friday Friday around, you know, six o'clock. Paper bag or no paper bag. Never imagining I'd be like (laughs) be involved in the wine industry on Vancouver Island or. Like, it's like, what the hell? <laughs> uh,
2: okay. I'd like to ask you about, uh, about natural wine and about, uh-uh. uh, you know, how do you, how do you convert the average Joe consumer? I struggle yeah. with, I struggle yeah. with natural wine. I struggle with the price. Um, yeah. yeah. So what, what, how do you, you know, how do you convert someone who is like a, just an everyday consumer to that, to that world?
0: I don't think there's, I don't think it's a black and white thing. I think it's an, it's something that's kind of people, they, you want them to kind of discover a little more and, or taste something like that's hopefully priced accessibly. That's the problem is that the prices are a little too high, especially just, on the imports.
1: Sorry to interrupt. I know Callie uh, way back when kind of uh, explained it, but just. You so mean our only, can,
2: our only, can, uh, <laughs> our only patron?
1: Right our now? only patron. Uh, she, she summarized. Callie, Callie Philp, our number one patron. she, she, she summarized natural wine way back when, but can you give us like a 30 second explanation just so So, people
0: uh, natural wine is basically nothing added, nothing taken away. Right. So we -hmm. can't make natural wine in BC legally. We have to add sulfites. So we have to, we have to use them to make sure the wine is stable. Mm -hmm. Um, however, so, so the term that we, that I like to use is low intervention. And that means it's and, and it's all a gray. It's this huge scale from like you know full on natural wines where there's nothing added, nothing taken. And that means in the vineyard as well as the cellar. So that means no chemicals uh, in the in the no sprays in the vineyard and nothing added or taken away in the winery. So I mean, no yeast is added, no enzymes, no additives uh, making the wine. And also when the wine is ready to be bottled, there's no fining or filtering, and that's for right. cloudy wines. Right. Uh, so we we say low intervention just because it's such a scale. And, you know, you know, some of the growers don't like to use organic sprays because they don't like them. They find the wine doesn't make the best quality of fruit for wine. So there's a really, we're in a really weird time where it's very, and I think it probably will be for a long time. It's a real gray area. And it's very hard to explain. And also you have to trust the producer because you can say, you know, it's low intervention or natural when really, it isn't, you know, there's a lot of greenwashing that I call greenwashing going on in the wine industry because it's trending right now. Um, And then when you get into natural wines, my experience with natural wines when I was in France, and this is where I got excited by it was that, and that, and they do say nothing added, nothing taken away is that there's just less intervention in the use of oak and the use of um, manipulation of the wine. And so you're getting true fruit flavors uh, you know, you can mask a, a really shitty wine with oak, whether it's oak barrel or, or, apparently. I mean, I don't make wine, but that's what I understand. And
2: not yet, anyway.
0: Yeah, and then yeah, and then a lot of wines are manipulated to be drinking young as well. They've been to, uh, they're to so they're ready off uh, right out of the out of the bottle. Um, and so the one thing I do like about the low intervention wine is it does bring the artisanal back in. Um, and there, and you know, when they say low intervention, there's actually probably a lot of intervention going on in the sense of, uh, you know, when the wine is finished fermenting, you're using concrete and and or amphora barrels or old, oak, or, you know, worn out old oak uh, just to soften it, and you're doing things that are more hands on but less chem- chemicals. But most, it's basically le- the le- less intervention, so no yeast, no additives, uh, and not messing around the wine once it's fermented.
1: Gotcha. Okay, back to uh, AJ's original question there my question was just uh oh how do you
0: convert somebody
2: i, I feel yeah i feel like it's yeah, yeah. i feel like it's kind of like getting people onto italian wine or old world wine that yeah. are used to california wine and you're like try this and they're like oh this sounds like no no no, i want wine not like horrible uh, like vinegar grape juice so like no no no, this is wine trust me
0: well you think about it if you're in your 40s or 50s and you've been consuming wine for a while it's going to be pretty hard to be tr- to shift anything. Like a lot of people, and many people are really stuck in their ways with food and wine. And they a they, lot of things. You know, yeah, a, I call it the Kim Crawford syndrome. Like people, um, <laughs> Kim Crawford, Sauvignon blanc. That's all they'll drink. That's the only wine that they.
2: And they they, they personify it too. Right. They're like, I love my Kim Crawford. Yeah. Like, all of a yeah.
0: sudden, it's like yours. Yeah. Like it's yeah, your, yeah, 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 yeah. Your yeah, relative.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that,
0: that's a kind of like an open-minded issue that's like a that's a f- philosophical i think psychological thing going on people get stuck on something they have to have it. it's like the coca-cola thing right
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and those wines are made to um not be too acidic so people don't get heartburn or they don't get the burn from acid and also there's just enough residual sweetness uh it's a balance of getting back to the glass, you know, enough enough to be attractive, but also enough to bring you back to the glass. And those are, uh, those are wines that are really developed. I think they're developed in labs.
2: The marketing shows like the fantasy gumboot, Joe, there in the thing clipping or Kim Crawford like, with problem. her, with yeah, her yellow know. hunters, like tr- pruning, you know, yeah. and she's like, I made this wine for you. But in real life, yeah, you've got, you know, you've got a, <laughs> Three thousand square foot lab, like micro-adjusting the wine yeah. to a tasting panels, you know, and, yeah, and making in, sure there's yeah. no
1: no uh, vintage variants whatsoever.
2: In and then real when,
1: life, in real life, it gets poured over ice into a to-go cup, and you drink it at a kid's soccer yeah. game. Kid soccer and
0: soccer game. <laughs> yeah, and there's really nothing wrong with that. It's a choice, but the problem is, is that people don't know the difference, yeah. right? So like you said, there. So wine is marketed as an artisanal, romantic image of a you know a guy in a, vine- a family in a vineyard growing grapes but really, you know, it's going to be different, you know, true. If you're true to the artisanal winemaking, it's going to be different every vintage. It's going to be, there's going to be even sometimes variation in the, in the wine itself through that vintage over time and in a year or two before it's consumed. Right. Or uh, so that whole, I think wine has been commodified obviously and, and there's commercial wine and, and people just don't know the difference. They think that wine is wine and they don't understand that it's a big jump from going from, the apothic red, Kim Crawford kind of wines, where you drink them every day, to actually taking a chance by trying a mushroom of things, and we see that that the um, comes to mind is that people exploring the local wineries and going to tasting rooms. That's where they start coming across diversity, and because they're in the tasting room, they they're committed to kind of buying a bottle or finding something positive about it, even if they're stuck on their Kim Crawford, and that's what starts opening their mind. It's really about opening your mind and and to experiences. And traveling you know going to a wine producing region like france or italy or spain traveling's
2: big and saying like this is just what we drink here (laughs) yeah yeah
0: you know i've done so many i used to do lots of store demos and i've done so many demos where in the nine on places like you know sometimes in really in more rural areas and it's like pulling teeth i used to pour synchromes rieslings at demos and uh and you get the guy that you know that only drinks apothic red he'd come and he'd taste it and like i don't drink sweet wines drink it and well, okay, whatever. You walk away. And then he'd come back later and go, "I'll try another one. That was actually really good." You know? <laughs> I go. I went to the raw wine fair in Montreal just over a year ago, and then uh, um, and then I I'm, I see kind of the demographic that's getting into natural wine and low intervention wine, and basically they're dissing their parents. Their parents are the ones that drink the big Napa wine or the big reds from California, and you know they're they're basically going flipping the other, you know, flipping that on its head and going, "Their values are different. Our values are different." we want healthier products. We want it to be, we want to be told that it's more sustainable and, and healthier. And also we love these cool labels. And there's a, there's also a shift from craft beer that's kind of making, that's connecting into this low intervention wine where you're seeing funky labels and everybody trying to outdo each other with a uh, kind of creative um, plays on kind of old world styles of making wine, like, you know, using M4 barrels or, or, um, uh, you know, cl- uh, ancestral sparkling wines, You're doing things that were done like a hundred years ago or a hundred plus years ago. Um, but they're making them trendy with cool labels and, you know, make them taste, deli- they taste delicious. The problem is they're expensive and they're also, expensive. Off. you know, cloudy wine will scare someone off. So it's, mm. I don't know how, I think people have to discover it.
2: I think the price makes it difficult for a lot of people. It sure does. Yeah. It's hard to, it's hard to spend $35 before tax on a, on a, on a no. gamble. That's it that's is. a lot of that's a lot of cash. Like you can get two
0: yeah. pretty drinkable bottles of wine for that price. But the millennials do it. Not. A, I mean, not a not a lot. And I mean, in Vancouver, so I saw us at the juice bar one night, and they were all eighty eighty dollars. You know, you pull a, a wine out of the fridge, and they're eighty plus, and the place is packed, and people. Oh, that's encouraging, it. then. Yeah. yeah so is,
2: Va- is Vancouver uh, is Vancouver like a reasonable kind of? Measurement. <laughs> measurement for, for any other market <laughs> other than Vancouver. Yeah, or, you
0: know, any any large progressive city. Yeah, that, I, I yeah. guess so, yeah. Yeah. Well, Victoria, you know, we see, like I've done pretty well. Uh, a good example, Ursa Major Wines, Rajan's Wines. Mm-hmm. They sell right through. They're gone. Yeah, but they're they, – okay, so
2: I think that there is a place of balance that exists where you have some elements yeah. of that, like – a higher acid a little bit, you know, you're, you're looking through a cloudy glass of wine. Your wine is fruit forward. It's said it's fresh. Good. It's young, but it isn't, yeah. it doesn't push the limits. It doesn't uh, yeah. expect too much out of the consumer. And right. that's a really sweet spot where you can yeah. really get people excited about wine without, you know, making them feel like they're, they're drinking something they don't understand.
0: Well, and some natural wine shouldn't even be on the shelf. Like there's like, you know, when you're getting, when you smell blue cheese and strawberries on the wine, you know that's a flawed wine. You know most wines, most winemakers wouldn't let that out the door. So there are some, there are some natural wines that are really pushing the edge, and there are the kind of uh, what do you call the kind of like the leaders in the pack that will buy those and they love the shit out of those. Like they love the the funkier the better. And I'm, and I had a really, like when I was at the juice bar in Vancouver, I don't mean to name them, but I had some wines there that were just like, oh my God, this is a hundred bucks. <laughs> this is crazy. And this is a, this is a wine that's, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't taste good, but yeah. the millennials don't know the difference. Like they're, this is the first time they've had a wine. You know? <laughs> some of them. Some of them, seriously, like they're, they're being introduced to natural wine. They think it's really cool. And that's one of the problems with it, with it. It's really about making high quality wine at the end of the day for any producer. You'd think it's about making their best. So
2: yeah, but if but if you I mean you make something and it sucks, so you're like, well,
1: fuck it, let's just put a great label on it and charge twice as much and see if it goes. Yeah, arguably, yeah. I think a lot of people are doing that with their product that ends up being like. I mean, I know, I know, I know for a fact that there are some breweries that have done that before too, where they were like, mm, this kind of shit the bad – but yeah. if we put a fun label on it and market it as something else, maybe, you know, like might as yeah. well, it's not at least a waste.
0: Yeah. Or they don't know the difference. I mean, that's the other thing. So, yeah, I, it's, so. so. it's funny because I, I, after being at the F- raw wine fair and then I was in Vancouver at the festival last year and, and going out and seeing some of these natural wines and seeing their trending. And, and also I had an experience in a restaurant in Victoria last year where, uh, a really nice well-meaning server came up and said "I hear you're into wine." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I love wine." And He brings up a glass of wine that was um kind of brown, dishwatery looking, and I was like, "Uh-oh." And it was a sauvignon blanc that had it was a natural wine, a sauvignon blanc that had finished fermentation early, so it was sweet. But then it started re-fermenting under warm conditions in their cl- in their closet in the restaurant, and they lo- and the guys like, "Yeah, we love it. It's awesome. It's bubbly, it's a little bit sweet." And I and I'm looking at, I'm sitting with a wine person <laughs> across from me, and she's like looking at me, and I'm looking at her, and I was like, oh, this is the and this is the problem. This is like a young, you know, uh, kind of naive uh, server who was totally into the natural wine thing and thought it was so cool, and the wine was just so <laughs> flawed and bad and awful, I couldn't drink it. And I was like, and so I called Matt, and I called Jay from Bella the next day. I was like, what the hell's going on? What the hell's happening? And they both said to me, and I was was talking about also this new, all this new producers coming in with like shitty wines. And he's like, (laughs) they're like, you know, they said the honeymoon, they said our honeymoon period's over. They said, this this is good. It's okay. We're just going to go back and make the best wines we can every year. That's all we're going to do. That's all this is about. I was like, oh yeah, right. Of course. It's not about the label or the trend. Mm. With it. Yeah, because I, I mean, well,
2: you might get you might get the one you know your label might get the one buy, but if your wine sucks and it's too expensive, and yeah, it, it's not you're not going to get the repurchase.
0: Yeah, and that being said, there's some really good low intervention BC wines right now. There's more and more. There's some really good, like we're seeing a lot of the young producers coming out, and it's you know it's tough to make a profit on wine.
2: What are what are you seeing? Or like, what kind of anticipations or predictions do you have about the future of of the wine business in BC maybe Vancouver Island specifically? Like, what uh, what are some consumer trends that you're expecting to see down the pipe?
0: Well, if you go beyond COVID, uh, I can give you. I've got a couple of different different kind of outlooks because COVID's changing things. Like uh, the you know how it's changing restaurants and speeding. It's basically accelerating kind of the challenges that we've been facing. So the wine world, BC wine world is that it's a tough business to make money. And we all know that it's kind of like restaurants. And, um, uh, and what happened with COVID is that the wineries that adapted this summer, uh, had really strong tasting room business and stronger than mm. ever, and also stronger than ever wine club business. And so the channels, you know, uh, sales channels in a winery are you know, they're going to be consumed direct to consumer, uh, liquor stores and restaurants. The, Loss in restaurants is now going towards direct to consumer, and uh, and then tasting experiences. So that's been a really good thing for the wine industry, I think. Uh, and then um, I believe what's happening well in Vancouver Island with the sale of Unsworth. Uh, I think Ron, it's, do you know about that?
1: Yeah, the sale of Unsworth.
0: Yeah. No, yeah. So,
1: I, I I I didn't know that they were actually. Yeah. No, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, they. It was kind of a. It wasn't a big announcement or anything, but Unsworth was uh, purchased by. Um, two investors from California. How long ago? uh, June, I think it was officially, it was June.
2: uh, The giant, like a giant wine conglomerate. Maybe maybe not giant, not a constellation big, but like a really big deal.
0: The Jackson family out of Napa Valley, Barbara Banke and Mrs. Jackson have been looking for... Properties that are a cool climate, so they own uh, Kendall Jackson Wines, is their biggest producing wines, and it's a family business, and they're huge, and they make the most Chardonnay I think in the world, out of just wow. that one Chardonnay that's exported all around the world. But they also own over seventy other wineries, Jesus. and they own some of the best wineries and best top producers, and they're not all big; some of them are very small boutique uh, out of California, Oregon, uh, a little bit in Australia, and then in Europe as well, and they. What they do is they uh, invest in, in companies they believe in or producers they believe in and let them do their thing so they don't just take over. It's not like a hostile takeover like you see in the Okanagan happening right in the last few years. Wow. So, they've, uh, so they were searching for cool climate production areas and Vancouver Island turns out to be um, because of the ocean, the location, our location near the ocean. I shouldn't say location in the ocean, but our proximity to the ocean. And uh, um, our climate, we are going to bode well in the future. Right now, California is burning, and Australia is having a hard time as well. And there's a—it's a hard uh, one of the things about grapes is you really want that—you want acidity as well as ripe, ripe grapes. You want acid and you want juice, or you want the natural sugars as well. And so, one of the problems with temperatures going up is you're going to—you're not going to get proper—you're not going to get healthy growing conditions for grapes. So they see this need and so they've been looking at different areas that are cool climate and and they toured Vancouver Island and chose Unsworth after visiting Unsworth and uh, did purchase over about a year. I think it it was completed in June. For them, it's more of an investment uh, into the region. And so we think that what's going to happen is that, well, we know what's going to happen is that the Pinot Noir prices will probably go up <laughs> and that Vancouver, we, we would think Vancouver will become a region that's known for Pinot Noir. And you'll see Pinot Noir available, wow. you know, Vancouver Noir available in Seattle and San Francisco and New York. And, and it'll raise, it'll elevate the, um, I mean, if the producers, ever, if everything goes right, uh, we will become a region that's known for Pinot Noir as, as, as maybe a very small version of Oregon. Uh, it's getting pre- people pretty excited.
1: Are, are you gentlemen all in favor for that? I mean, it is is notoriety a good thing, or is that going to dilute our lovely little cozy Vancouver Island baby?
0: Yeah, so that, that was my worry as well. <clears throat> and then um, it was explained to me that we're not – an agriculture center and we only produce such a small amount of wine anyway. Right. And, we, and we don't have the potential to be uh, a major producer. Right. So it's not about volume. It'll be about one of these little micro regions that's hot. Well, that's that's sure. pretty
1: exciting because even somebody like myself with limited knowledge or, or growing knowledge bit by bit about the, the wine industry is particularly in Vancouver Island. I've been hearing about Pinot Noir now for a good number of years now and how it's it's gaining steam. So that's, that's kind of exciting.
0: It's a huge step for the island because, I, you know, and that's something that, Growing up around here and seeing and you Franz, you mm-hmm. you can test so this. It's like there's been this like hodgepodge of producers trying it out, you know. And then for a long time they used to, you know, not get along so well. You know, there's like a it was a tough market. <laughs> and uh, they're all and so there was this kind of uh there wasn't this uni, unifying factor. And then and you're seeing with the new makers like at the kind of the next generation, uh Dan Wright from Unsworth and Brent um at Avril and Dan at uh, Kudatash, they're seeing a um, kind of they're working they're working together on some level. They're sharing ideas and and they're competing a bit. To, you know, to, well they're competing in some ways to try and make the their best Pinot. You know, and uh, I think the bar Healthy has gone up. I think we've got this stage where now it's you know now it's going to become it's just going to it's going to grow, and over time we'll see. Very cool. Um, nice. I
1: have a bit of a of – a, probably a, a lowbrow question for you, Mark, but I'm curious. Um, can you give me two or three of your desert island wines? Shit.
0: You mean anywhere in the world? <laughs> sure. Uh, I would definitely bring some champagne with me.
1: Right. I would definitely bring right.
0: something from Italy. i bring a big red from northern Italy. Okay. Or uh, a really – or, or something from the mountains in Italy, like a heavy minerality white wine. And then also, I think, uh, you know, like even though I'm, I'm tasting a lot of these young kind of natural wines, I still like the classics. Like I really love like a Loire Cap Franc, like a really good Loire Cap Franc, or even wines from Giro. The Seventy, the uh, the orange wine, or the, sorry, the yellow wines that are have a little bit of a, um, they have a kind of a port-like or a sherry-like quality to them. Mm. I had one the other day. It was delicious. It was so mm. good. Mm. Fabulous. We're so spoiled here. Hey, we don't, uh, we don't really get to know anything really well. We get a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we can have Whatever we want kind of thing. It's, it's, it's quite, it's a bit, of, I wonder if it's a bit of a dilemma in some ways, but maybe it's a great thing because we're so spoiled. We can have, you can kind of bring in what you want, mm-hmm. but, um, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Jack of all trades, master of none.
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that was that was fantastic. Mark, thank you so thank you. very much thank for you. your time. Uh, it's been really nice. I look forward to seeing you in person.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. in the
2: store, and uh, thanks for all your insight and your stories. And, uh, well, thank you guys very much, and thank you, everybody listening, and uh, catch you on the next one. Ciao. At the end of a hard day, nothing satisfies like a riot brewing handcrafted true-to-style ale. Available at your favorite local liquor store. Life's a riot.
1: Last customer has left the building. All that's left to do, mop and take out the trash. Thank you guys for joining us again. If you have any questions, thoughts, or episode ideas, you can email us at podcastitw at gmail.com. See you next time.